Well, last week in chapter 20, uh, it was easy to see that tensions were rising between Jesus and the Jewish religious leaders in Jerusalem. Uh, It's like the gloves came off. Jesus is in Jerusalem. the The gloves came off. He's not holding back because he knows what's going to happen. See, he knows. He knows his time has come. So he's teaching daily in the temple and going toe-to-toe with the chief priests, the scribes, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, all of the religious elites there in Jerusalem. Uh, And they're trying to get Jesus to say something wrong. Okay, Anything that they can use against him to turn the people against him, or even better, to turn some of the Roman officials like Pontius Pilate against him. And we'll see that very thing, we'll see that clearly in the next two chapters. If they can't get him to say it, they'll make it up, you know. They'll make it up and present false witnesses to testify against him, which we'll see that they actually do. But so far, Jesus has thwarted all of their efforts at every turn, and all they've done is make themselves look bad, and Jesus look good. And uh, Jesus is good, uh, and they are bad, okay. And he points that out. He made that clear when he exposed them and targeted them in the parable of the vine growers, which we covered last week, if you were here. Um, They knew what he was doing. He knew what he was doing. The people in the temple knew what he was doing, right? He was calling them out on their holier-than-thou hypocrisy, their hypocrisy. They're one thing on the outside, and they're another thing on the inside. Chapter 20 wrapped up. Uh, last week with a very pointed warning from Jesus. It was the last, the very last part of chapter 20. Um, He said, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love respectful greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogue and places of honor at banquets who devour widows' houses and for appearances' sake offer long prayers. Jesus exposes their hypocrisy for all to see. The people knew what he was talking about when he was saying that. Jesus exposes them, and they're doing what they're doing for all the wrong reasons. He's talking about their motives and what's behind what they do. That helps us to better understand why they want to get rid of Jesus, right? Because he's messing with their gig, right? He's exposing them for who they are. But I also think, I also think that in saying that and in doing these things that Jesus was actually trying to help them. He was prophetically speaking truth into their lives so that they might realize the wrong of their ways and repent. But they don't get it. They don't get it. It just makes them mad and they get all defensive. So today in chapter 21, we pick up right there after Jesus says, beware of the scribes and this is why. Jesus is still in the temple. It's the same day as chapter 20. It's not a different day. Same day, same people. Same situation. So listen to verses 1 through 4 of chapter 21. And he looked up, and he saw the rich putting their gifts into the treasury. And he saw a poor widow putting in two small copper coins. And he said, truly I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all of them. For they all out of their surplus put into the offering, but she out of her poverty put all that she had to live on. Would you pray with me? Lord God, I pray that the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight this day, O Lord. That the words of Scripture in chapter 21 
and the way we hear them and the way they fall upon our understanding would bring us enlightenment about ourselves and about what you call us to be. Holy Spirit, give us ears to hear what you're saying to your church, to us as a church family, but also to us individually. Help us not to listen to the sermon for others, but to listen to your words and your message for ourselves. We pray in your name, Jesus, and all God's people said, amen. The passage that I just read is about ratio. It's about proportion, and it's about percentages, mathematically speaking, okay? It's about people who have a lot, and it's about people who have a little. But it's also about generosity. It's also about sacrifice and devotion. Jesus saw the rich folks coming in and putting their offering into the treasury, which is kind of like our receptacles back here. You know, you come in and you put it in. The temple had a situation kind of like that where you entered. And they were putting their offering into the treasury. And Luke doesn't specify how much it was, but the implication is the gifts would be large and significant because the people who are giving them are rich. Yes, they're rich. But in contrast, in contrast, there's a poor widow who puts in two small copper coins. Okay? Um, we're not sure exactly what they were in this gospel, but in Mark's gospel, he has the same story, and he specifies that it was two mites, which would kind of be like two cents in our culture. It was one of the smallest Roman coins in circulation at the time, at that time in Israel. So her two cents worth, okay, wasn't worth much at all, right? Her two cents worth wasn't worth much. Monetarily speaking, it was as close to nothing as you could get or give, okay? That's what she gave in the temple. So Jesus chimes in, and he chimes in because Jesus looks beneath the surface. And Jesus doesn't just see the obvious, but he sees the heart. In verse 3, he said, Truly I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all of them. Not just one of them, but all of them. She gave more than all of those rich folks with their large and significant gifts. Two small copper coins, like pennies. How is that possible? The math does not seem to add up. But Jesus said this. He said, for they, that is the rich, all out of their surplus put into the offering. But she, out of her poverty, put in all that she had to live on. Okay, John Blake translation. They gave from the extra money they had. They gave from their extra money, their surplus. Has anybody ever been to an army surplus store? Oh, it's great. I bought so much stuff I didn't need. It's wonderful. Used to have one over here by the juice plant. Anybody remember that on 441? Oh, please. Okay, all right, all right, Debbie. Okay, some of you old Lee's were, Lee, Lee probably bought some stuff he didn't need too, yeah. I think I got a gas mask one time. It didn't even work, but it scared the children, so it was, it was worth it. But that's army surplus means it's just extra stuff that they had and they're, rather than give it away, they're trying to sell it and make some money from it so people buy it out and, and sell it, all right? So they gave out of their extra, out of their surplus, but she gave from what was essential for her survival. She gave from her McDonald's money, okay? She gave from what she needed to eat. They gave a portion out of their abundance, so it was kind of just basically a gesture for them, but she gave all that she had which was almost nothing, almost nothing. The point is, for her, it was a sacrifice birthed out of devotion. See, it wasn't a gesture, 
It was a sacrifice birthed out of devotion. So by Jesus' math, Jesus' mathematics, her nothing was quite something. Her nothing was quite something. What she gave out of her need, along with her sacrifice and devotion, was a greater gift. That's Jesus' math. Jesus' math. Do you remember uh, the book, Dr. Seuss wrote it, Green Eggs and Ham? Anybody remember that? I used to read it to my kids. I think I used to read it when I was a kid. Well, I don't know when it came out. I should have checked that out. Sorry. Should do right research. But you remember, he says, no, Sam, I am. I will not eat green eggs and ham. Right? We all know the book. Okay, I want you to forget about the green part for now. Okay? I want to focus on the eggs and ham, or the ham and eggs, however you want to call it. In talking about what was going on with this widow and her giving. So I want to ask you a question. In a breakfast of eggs and ham, who gives the most, the chicken or the pig? <laughs> In a breakfast of eggs and ham, who makes the bigger sacrifice, the chicken or the pig? Very good, very good. You see, the chicken gave out of surplus. Those eggs are just going to keep on popping out, right? Oh, there's more to come, right? That's what the chicken did. But the pig gave it all. And I'm not talking, if you're thinking in your mind, of pigs running around on crutches. No, no, it's more than that. Yeah, it's more than that. The pig gave it all. And that's what Jesus is saying about this widow. She, she gave what she needed to survive. She gave it all. In the next five verses, Jesus sets the tone for the rest of this chapter. And it's all about things to come. Say things to come. Ready? Things to come. Say it again. Things to come. It's all about things to come. It's about things to come, okay, in the near future, like maybe in the next um, 20, 30 years, something like that, in the near future. He's talking about things to come that are a little further out, like the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. And he's also talking about things to come in the future that are thousands of years off, thousands of years off like the second coming of Christ. There are all in between here. There's going to be times of trouble and persecution and tribulation. This is a, I'm warning you, this is a very dark chapter in the Gospel of Luke. It's a very dark chapter. It's full of warnings and prophecies about the end times, and it can be quite disturbing. So just to let you know, okay? And it's all going to culminate with the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. It's the second coming of Christ. It's the end of all things and the new heaven and the new earth and all of that. So I want you to buckle up, okay? Hang on. Fasten your seatbelts. Here we go. Jesus is still teaching in the temple. Same thing. He just praised the widow to his disciples. She gave more than all of them. And now he turns his attention to the coming destruction of the temple. And he warns his disciples that false prophets, deceivers, will also come, posing to be the Christ, posing to be him. But he says, don't believe it, don't believe what they tell you, and do not follow them. Listen to verses 5 through 9. It says, and while some were talking about the temple, they're standing around the temple, that it was adorned with beautiful stones and votive gifts, how lovely the temple is. He said, as for these things which you are looking at, the days will come in which there will not be left one stone upon another which will not be torn down. They questioned him, saying, teacher, probably rabbi, rabbi, when therefore will these things happen? And what will be the sign when these, these things are about to take place? 
And he said, see to it that you are not misled. Another word, deceived. Do not be misled. For many will come in my name saying, I am he. I am he. And the time is near. Don't go after them. Do not go after them. When you hear of wars and disturbances, do not be terrified. For these things must take place first before the end. Does not before, uh, before the end, does not follow immediately. What he's trying to say there is the end, it's not going to be immediate. That's what he says. It's not going to be immediate. In other words, there's a lot of things that are going to happen between now and then. If you remember a couple chapters ago, Jesus was trying to straighten them out because he said people were thinking, oh, well, the end is going to come immediately. He said, no, no, no. A lot of things are going to happen between now and the end of times. And in verses 10 through 19, Jesus continues to lay out many things that will occur leading up to the second coming and the end of the ages. Nation will rise against nations, there's earthquakes, plagues, famines, great signs in the heavens. So listen as I read and comment on verses 10 through 19. 10 through 19. When he, then he continued by saying to them, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be, a great, there will be great earthquakes and in various places plagues and famines and there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all these things, hold that, hang on to that. Before all these things, they will lay hands on you and will persecute you and deliver you to the synagogues and prisons, bringing you before kings and governors for my name's sake. It will lead to an opportunity for your testimony. So what he's saying there, he says, before these things, in other words, there's nations going to rise against all this stuff. He says, but before that happens. So this is before, not after, or when. Before that happens, he said, they're going to lay their hands on you. They're going to persecute you and arrest you and deliver you and take you to prison. What does that sound like? What sounds like our series on the book of Acts, doesn't it? So this is stuff that happened like right after the resurrection and the day of Pentecost. Do you remember some of those stories that we heard? Peter and the, the disciples, the apostles, were arrested and they were beaten. And then they were afraid to do something terrible to them. So they said, okay, we'll let you go if you stop talking about Jesus. Did they stop talking about Jesus? No. They talked about Jesus all the more. And he says that this is going to be an opportunity for your testimony. But think about the apostle Paul before he became a Christian. Do you remember what he was doing? He, was, he had letters from the chief priests in Jerusalem to go to other cities to arrest Christians and persecute them before he became a Christian. So he was part of that. So he says, before these things, those things are going to happen. And this will be an opportunity for your testimony. So make up your minds not to prepare beforehand to defend yourselves, for I will give you utterance and wisdom which, which none of your opponents will be able to resist or refute. But you will be betrayed. This is kind of a tough thing. This also reminds me of Paul and the book of Acts. But you will be betrayed even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends. And they will, some will put you to death. And you will be hated by all because of my name. You know when people, like you know who Paul was persecuting? Jews who became Christians. And their parents probably turned them in. It was not something that Jews were supposed to do. And so that's what happened. So they were being persecuted by their own family. And Paul was probably disowned by his family when he started following Christ. But he said, I count it all loss. I've given up all that I have for the gospel, for the gospel. 
So Jesus is telling his disciples, a lot of crazy stuff is going to happen. But before it does, before it does, you're going to be arrested, imprisoned, persecuted, and some of you will be killed. But that will be giving you an opportunity to tell people about me. And don't worry about what you're going to say. I got you covered. So I'll give you the words. I'll give you the wisdom. They won't be able to refute your argument. But it's going to be bad. That's what he's saying. It's going to be bad. It's going to be really hard. And some of you will die. And you'll be hated because of me and my name. But I love the last verse that it says here. It says here, in verse 19, he goes on and he says, You'll be hated in my name, yet not a hair on your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. It reminds me of the Gospel of John, chapter 16, verse 33, where Jesus says, In the world you have tribulation, trouble, bad things, but take courage. Just be strengthened. Take courage, for I have overcome the world. He's telling his followers, it's going to be bad. Okay? It's going to be hard, but you're going to make it. So take courage. You will overcome as I have. By your endurance, it says, you will gain your lives. You'll gain your lives. Four to six years ago, this is on a personal note, I came to the realization that it is well within the, the realm of possibility that I could be arrested at some point. I could be arrested for what? For preaching and teaching biblical principles. I could be, I, I thought that I could be arrested for teaching and preaching biblical morality. And since then, this is about four or six years ago, I've mentioned it from the pulpit, but since then, it's only gotten worse. <laughs> it's more real now. It's more probable now. Um, it's gotten to the point where you cannot disagree with the opinions of certain cultural groups and movements in our country and in the world. You can't, you can't disagree. Uh, you, you, they expect you to affirm it. Um, and if you do disagree, you are quickly labeled. Something like a hater or a bigot or even worse. Now, I want you to know, all of you who are here, I am not a hater. Would you agree with that? Who thinks I'm a hater? All right, just checking. I'm not a hater. Guess what I am? I'm a lover. I'm a lover. I believe in Jesus. I'm a follower of Jesus. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Be at peace with all people when at all possible. That's me. That's me. But I should be able to hold and express a dissenting view or a different opinion. I'm not a hater, but I am a disagreeer sometimes. Now, let's face it, okay? There is one thing that everyone agrees upon. Okay, there is. You didn't think there was. You want to know what it is? Cheerios. We all agree that soggy Cheerios are bad, right? So when it comes time to pour the milk on your Cheerios, you turn them on, and I'm eating. I'm grabbing all them bananas, and I'm going, because I do not like soggy Cheerios, right? Do we all agree? I knew it. I knew it. That's the one thing in the world everyone agrees upon is we don't like soggy Cheerios. And the Honey Nut Cheerios last a little longer because they spray that sugar stuff on them, right? Is that right? You know what I'm talking about. Are we, are we, you picking up what I'm laying down? They stay crunchier longer. I just hate soggy ones. Okay, but here, if there was, there's not, but if there was someone who loved soggy Cheerios, they should be able to disagree with us, right? It's America. They should be able to say, no, crunchy Cheerios, no. Soggy Cheerios, okay? And we shouldn't call them names for it, right? Okay? 
So I should be able to hold and express a dissenting view or a different opinion, especially when it is essential to my religious beliefs. Do you know what that's called? Religious freedom. It's called freedom of speech. It's called freedom of conscience, which is one of the most sacred principles that our Constitution was founded upon. It came out of the Enlightenment and John Locke. And Thomas Jefferson was a big student of John Locke of, about it tolera- toleration and the freedom of religion, freedom of speech, freedom of conscience is the base of that and what that comes out of. So in good conscience, I can't agree with everybody. I just can't. I can't agree with some of these cultural movements that are happening right now, and I certainly cannot affirm this new kind of morality that you all know about. I'm not even going to mention, okay? But in order to do that, okay, if I were to do that, I would have to deny my faith and my biblical morality. And not only that, for me to affirm and to agree with it, I would have to deny science and biology and physiology. And I, I can't do that. I disagree with that. I disagree with that. But that's liable to get me in some trouble is all I'm saying, right? It's liable to get me in some trouble. I could be arrested for something that they call hate speech for disagreeing and for not affirming other people. Now, I'm not trying to scare anyone here. Not at all. But I am saying, heads up, y'all. Heads up, y'all. Okay? Be on guard. Be on alert. Don't, I'm not saying be, anybody should be jerks or mean or any of that. Speak the truth in love. But we need to know that we may not be too far off from this. That's a hard word. But we may not be too far from what we're reading about in Luke today and being persecuted for our faith and what we believe. We may be in or entering into the end times in the last days. I don't know. I don't know. But I believe that it is within the realm of possibility. So we need to be praying and trying to be who Jesus called us to be. To be loving, but also to be faithful to what he has called us to do. Amen? So MRA, moving right along, moving right along. In verses 20 through 24 of chapter 21, Jesus prophesies and describes the destruction and desolation of Jerusalem and the temple in 70 A.D. So listen as I read and comment on the words of Jesus as he continues to foretell things to come. Say that, things to come, things to come. Listen to verse 20 through 24. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize that her desolation is near. When the Romans, maybe you might not know this, but the Romans were obviously in charge when Jesus was walking in Jerusalem and the books that we're talking about. But there was a Jewish revolt. They actually drove the Romans out of Jerusalem and out of most of Judea. Um, The rebels did, and they drove them out. Well, that worked for a while, but then the Romans got more soldiers, right? And they came back, okay? And so they slowly backed all of these rebels into Jerusalem, and they were held up in Jerusalem, and Rome laid siege to Jerusalem. They were all around the city, couldn't get in with food, water, any of that. They were trying to starve them out of there, and they held them for a while, okay, and then they finally breached the wall, and it was a massacre. It was a massacre in Jerusalem, and they flattened the temple. The only thing that's left of the temple right now is part of the supporting wall, which is called the Wailing Wall, 
it was just completely flattened and destroyed. They destroyed some of the walls as well, and they burned all of the gates. But that's what happened in Jerusalem. That was 70 A.D. But then in this next verse, verse 21, and this is Jesus foretelling, okay, then those who are, and then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. We're going to talk about that. Flee to the mountains, and those who are in the midst of the city must leave, and those who are in the country must not enter the city. So they flee to the mountains. There is a mountaintop fortress called Masada. Masada means fortress, right? And Herod constructed it. It's on the top of this mountain. So some of the rebels, actually 960 of them, retreated to Masada and held up there and held off the Romans there for a long time. It was kind of an embarrassment to the Romans, Okay, they built this huge ramp after a while, and they finally were able to get, and they were, the whole time they're building this ramp, they're being attacked, you know, from above. And they had food up there, they had some water in some of the cisterns. The water they store is from flash floods when it rains, and they have channels that take it to special places that hold the water. So they're in there, but finally the Romans got up high enough where they could batter and breach the wall, and when they got in there, it looked like everybody was dead because they had a suicide rather than be taken by the Romans. They found seven people that had been hiding that were still alive. Seven people, I think four women and three children, or three men and four children, and they were made slaves. So this verse appears to be talking about that. It's talking about that. Because these are the days of vengeance, so that all things which are written will be fulfilled. Woe to those who are pregnant and those who are nursing babies in those days. Why? Because he's describing the most vulnerable, Right? The most vulnerable. For there will be great distress upon the land and the wrath to this people. And they will fall by the edge of the sword, which they certainly did, and will be led captive into all the nations, made slaves, which is what happened. Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles un- until the time that the Gentiles of the Gentiles is fulfilled. And of course the Gentiles were the Romans. And what's interesting to note here is that Luke in the book of, he wrote the book of Luke and the book of Acts. The destruction of the temple is not mentioned in the book of Acts. What that tells us is it had not happened yet. It had not happened yet. Yet Jesus foretells in Luke, he records that he foretells in Luke, but the actual uh, destruction of Jerusalem and the temple and Masada, all that, Luke had already been written. Acts had already been written when that happened. So that's kind of cool. We need to know that. We need to know that. Um, But it's a good description of what happened to Jerusalem 37 years after the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus. In these next 10 verses, Jesus prognosticates the far-off future, not the near future and not the the temple kind of future, but the far-off future, events surrounding the second coming of the Son of Man, signs in the heaven, dismay among the nations, roaring of the seas and the waves. Jesus said, the powers of heaven will be shaken. The powers of the heavens will be shaken. And Jesus is telling his disciples, when you begin to see some of those things, you will know the time is near. Your redemption is near. The kingdom of God is almost complete. Listen for that as I read verses 25 through 33. 25 through 33. There will be signs in sun and moon and stars and on the earth dismay among nations in perplexity at the roaring of the sea and the waves. Something's going to be happening with the ocean and the waves. 
men fainting from fear in the expectation of the things which are coming upon the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man, here it is, coming in a cloud with power and great glory. But when these things begin to take place, straighten up, lift up your heads. Heads up, y'all, that's what he's saying. Because your redemption is drawing near. And he told them a parable. This is a very short parable. Behold the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they put forth leaves, you see it. And you know for yourselves that summer is near. So you also, in other words, just like that, when you see these things happening, recognize that the kingdom of God is near. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. So he's saying to them, some of you will still be here when these things start happening. Some of you will still be alive. He's talking to the disciples, not just the 12, but the like 120 other disciples that followed him around, at least 120. He's saying to them, some of you may still be alive when these things happen. Not the second coming, because that hasn't happened yet. Because when that happens, remember, lightning, everyone will know. So he's not talking about the second coming, but the things leading up to the second coming of the Son of Man and the kingdom, the completion of the kingdom of God, the new heaven and the new earth. So he said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Translation for that is you can take it to the bank. You can trust what I'm telling you, right? You can count on it. If I said it, you can count on it. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. In verses 34, 35, and 36, Jesus tells them what to do in the meantime. What to do and what not to do when you see these things. What to do and what not to do in the presence of persecution and imprisonment. What to do and what not to do in trials and tribulation. And what to do and what not to do until the Son of Man returns and the kingdom of God is complete. So listen for that as I read 34, 35, and 36. 34, 35, and 36. Be on guard. There you go. Be on guard so that your hearts will not be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the worries of life. That word dissipation means immorality, specifically sexual immorality, and drunkenness and the worries of life. And that day will not come upon you suddenly like a trap. So he's saying as long as you... You stay on guard, right? You're ready. You'll see it coming. But if you fall into these other traps, not going to know. For it will come upon you all, it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the earth. It's not just going to happen in Jerusalem, not just going to happen here, not just going to happen there. It's going to happen all over the face of the earth, all the things that he says I'm talking about. But keep on alert at all times. Listen, praying, praying that you may have strength to escape these things that are about to take place, and to stand before the Son of Man. So what do we do in the meantime as we're watching and waiting for the coming of Christ? Well, first of all, be on guard. Don't be asleep at the wheel, and don't be distracted by all these things, the worries of life and drunkenness and dissipation, and try and distract yourself, because if you do, it's going to be on you like a trap, right? So he says, be on guard, be on guard, and keep on alert. Keep on alert. At all times, all times, praying, praying, praying that you may have strength to stand before 
the Son of Man. Verses 37 and 38 is just informational, and it leads us up to what happens in chapter 22. Um, so I'm going to just read those last two verses here before I wrap up. He says, Now during the day he was teaching in the temple, but at evening he would go out and spend the night on the mount that is called Olivet. That's the Mount of Olives. It's outside of the walls of Jerusalem. When you're up on the temple mound, there's this big flat area that you can walk around, and I think it's called the Beautiful Gate. I can't remember, but you go out there, and it leads you down to uh, the Mount of Olives. And so they would stay there at night. And then verse 38 says, And all the people would get up early in the morning to come to him in the temple to listen to him, because Jesus was up and early in the temple. And all of this, all of Holy Week, that's what he's doing. He's teaching in the temple, teaching in the temple, teaching in the temple. So next week is all about the Passover. We're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper next week. It's all about the Passover and preparing and the Lord's Supper. It's about learning who the greatest is and serving. Jesus is going to talk about that. It's about the agony in the Garden of Gethsemane that Jesus went through. Judas' betrayal, Jesus' arrests and trials. I'm just, I'm not going to make any promises. We may not get all the way through that chapter because there's a lot. And we're going to celebrate communion and all of that thing. So, um... Anyway, would you pray with me? Lord, I thank you for uh, these lessons. They're kind of scary. Um, thinking about that, thinking about us with, with our families and our children. and thinking, but, but you said your words would not pass away. And we need to be on guard. We need to be alert. We need to be faithful. And we trust you. We trust you in all of this, God. Pray that you would help us to understand, Lord, and what specifically you're speaking to us and what this means for each one of us in this chapter. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.